Father, I thank You for Your Word, which is undeniable and declarative, and it really reveals what we believe about You. So I pray as we open up Your Word right now that if you need to push buttons and you need to align us with your thinking, that that is exactly what you would do, and you can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand that. So, Father, we pray that Your Word would come alive, that it would be sharp, and that it would be active, and that You would do heart surgery where You need to. I pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said. You'll find this to be much brighter than what we looked at in the last couple of weeks. That wouldn't be hard, right, from coming out of Judges, but you'll find this to be brighter. But let me start off with something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, and He said it very explicitly to His followers. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I think we would all agree it's a pretty difficult statement, especially in the context of what Jesus said when He said it, because He's in the first century when family is held to the preeminent position. Nothing higher or more important than family in the world that Jesus is in, and He says, you better not put them before Me, or you're not worthy of Me, which is actually a match for something Paul wrote in Galatians, one of my wife's favorite verses, Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? See, Paul took Jesus' statement and he put it in the form of a question, a question that we should all be asking ourselves on a routine basis, maybe even a daily basis. What has first place in my life? Do I have God in first place or something else? Really important question no matter what stage of life you're in. And this very issue actually plays out this morning in 1 Samuel in this particular story. We saw the book of Judges conclude with these really graphic stories about the the collection of these leaders who are living in a really ungodly way, very sinful way. Well, 1 Samuel opens up with leadership of the nation still behaving a very sinful way, and the opening of it tracks the downfall of the house of Eli and the rising of a young man by the name of Samuel. In the midst of what you're about to look at, you'll see this next week, this is part of the part B, Israel is going to lose the Ark of the Covenant in a battle. They will go to war with the Philistines, and the Philistines will take the Ark of the Covenant, and they will hold it, not for ransom. They intend to keep it. And God's going to use those circumstances to reveal to everyone and remind everyone that He is above mankind, above the behavior of mankind. His greatness is not regulated by mankind. Now, at this stage where you open up 1 Samuel this morning, you find that the priesthood The very thing which God designed to lead the people closer to Him has become totally corrupt. They're vile in their behavior. Spiritual life support in the nation is non-existent. You might say spiritual life is on life support at this stage. And as a result, their nation is weak. It's impotent, and it's behaving as a nation without a rudder. And ultimately, behavior like that, when it's left unchecked, it makes a nation vulnerable as it could be easy, easy prey, because there's this truth that's as old as time. As goes the spiritual life of the nation, so goes everything else 
They're completely inseparable. So let's dive into verse 1 and see what God's Word reveals. Now there was a certain man from Ramatham Zophim, thought I don't have to say that twice. Rama, I'm making myself say it twice, I won't do that. From the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So Elkanah has two wives, and the order in which the names are listed indicates the ranking. So Hannah is the most favored. She's in the preeminent position. Her name is mentioned first, but she's unable to conceive, so her husband Elkanah takes it upon himself to bring a second wife into the mix. Uh, taking other wives is completely co prohibited by God, but it's common in their culture. Everyone's doing as they saw fit in their own eyes, and it, because it's not condemned in culture, that's exactly what He does. He wants an heir. Uh, Hannah is much loved, but she's brokenhearted. There's this stigma in their society specifically, in this ancient world, that if you can't produce a child and produce an heir, well, then your life really doesn't amount to much as a woman. The, the other women look down on them, and the second wife, Penina, really makes life hard for her because the thought going through people's heads at this time is, well, if you can't produce an heir, it must be that God doesn't like you. Well, they couldn't be further from the truth. They couldn't be more wrong. We actually find in verse 5 what's going on in the background is this, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, even though they don't understand it, even though they don't even know that detail, this was written afterwards, they don't understand what's going on, God is behind the scenes and He's working behind the scenes. So Hannah's infertility is no accident, it's actually the deliberate work of the Lord, which reminds us of a really strong biblical principle, church. God may allow heartbreak into our lives in order to accomplish His purposes, purposes that far outweigh the calamity that we're going through. We, we need to understand that God does allow tragedy. If you don't believe me on that and you want evidence from Jesus Himself, John chapter 9 is probably the most preeminent explanation of that. Jesus spoke about this very issue. Look with me at John chapter 9 verse 1. As He, meaning Jesus, passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, God did it because He's got a bigger plan. God's got a glory plan in mind. So God is behind this very detail. So we need to be reminded that if we're going through something hard, we should not be too quick to conclude that the hard things are the result of a God who does not care. Rather, just the opposite, actually, because He cares, He's always at work. He's always at work around us, and He allows things that seem to make no sense at the time whatsoever when we're going through it. It may not even make sense by the end of our life, but we understand that God is behind the scenes working. And He causes all things to work together for good, right, church? How often do you need to be reminded of that? Romans 8. Look with me on the screen at that. I need to be reminded of it. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, meaning have to be in relationship with Him, it's not saying everything's going to feel good and that everything is going to 
turn out exactly the way you want it to. It's saying God can cause it to turn for good, for the good of the kingdom. Now, in between verses 2 and verses 9, this family makes their way down to the tabernacle area in Shiloh. And and verse 7 says they went specifically to the house of the Lord to make their annual sacrifice. Pick it up with me in verse 9. Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. And she's taking a Nazarite vow on behalf of this one that would be born to her if God would favor her. You study her prayer later, you'll find that it is a study in theology. It is incredibly rich. We could spend an entire semester just on the first chapter of Samuel. But time restrains me, so I've got to move on, but here's what I want you to see. Hannah actually is leaving this family celebration, and she shows up at the tabernacle. And because she is so dedicated to God, in spite of the hard things she's going through and in spite of the circumstances. Hannah is this woman of faith, and she goes to the Lord just to pour out her heart and say, this is what's going on for me. So verse 10 says, she's in psychological distress. She's greatly distressed, psychological pain. And in the midst of that, what's really remarkable is she calls out to God in the midst of her distress to the Lord Almighty. Look with me at verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Now, we would, if we're church people, we would repeat that phrase without even stopping to think about it. Repeatedly, you find it throughout Scripture. But what might surprise you is Hannah is the first person in the entire Bible to use that phrase, Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty. Now, this could resonate with you this way. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples show up, and they want to fight on His behalf. And Jesus has to speak back specifically to Peter and says, don't you understand that if I just speak the word, my Father in heaven, who is the commander of the host of heaven, He will send a legion of angels to rescue me. Well, link that with Hannah. She understands who God is, that He is the defender, that He is the one who is the Lord of the armies of heaven. And so this pain that she's in is producing a theologian. No one's ever used this term before, but she just calls out to God, and she's explicitly, implicitly recognizing God as her defender and as the giver of life. Now, watching all of this is Eli, and he's seated on this chair at the doorpost, which in the ancient world is a sign of authority. This is an elevated seat. This is the position where the ruler would find themselves. It's like saying, I'm large and in charge. I've got control of this place. And so this is more like a throne that he finds himself on, and he's watching this, verse 12. Now, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. It's been my experience that we tend to speak out of the depths of who we are, that this is what he concludes, 
that this is what he arrives at tells me a whole lot more about him than it does about her and what he's exposed to in his life and actually portends the kind of behavior that his sons are involved in on a regular basis. It's not actually speaking about Hannah, verse 14, then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Now, even though he is high priest of Israel, this guy is not spiritually dialed in because position doesn't always translate to competence, does it, church? Just because you have a position of power doesn't mean you're competent in that position. Now, Eli possesses spiritual authority because of the office that he holds, both a political and a spiritual office, and he holds it over the nation. But just because he holds that doesn't mean he's competent in that role. He is a spiritual bumbler. He totally gets it wrong. He's unable to distinguish reality, and he lacks spiritual depth. So soon you're going to see just how far gone this guy is. God's going to have to speak through a child to get his attention. The true spiritual powerhouse in this part of the story is Hannah. Hannah is the one who is so remarkable. She's socially powerless. She's just a woman from the country who has no standing in the community. Yet she's very aware of what faith in God can do, verse 15. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am an oppressed, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Don't consider me a daughter of Satan. Don't take me to be a woman of Belial, a daughter of Satan. That's the phrase that's actually used here, Bet Belial. She is far more intimate in her relationship with God than Eli is. He's supposed to be the spiritual icon of his generation, but he's clueless as to the activity of God. I had individuals approach me after the 9 o'clock service say, man, you're being pretty hard on Eli. Yeah, I am. I admit it. I'll show you why. Verse 19, they go back home. Elkanah had relations with his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. So when it says he had relations, it's talking about sexual relationship between the two. They know each other. The Lord gives an answer to her very honest, very humble prayer request. And we have to remember that her request is in concert with God's greater plan. He wants to raise up one last judge. And this last judge is also going to serve as a priest and as a prophet. Go to 21, then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So it's a whole year later. Elkanah is going back to the same festival that they had been at previously when she's pouring out her heart to God. And he's headed back, and she wants to stay home and take care of this infant. And she keeps up this practice until the child is about three years of age, because in the ancient world, they nursed children until they were almost three. Wow. Nobody's signing up for that, right? Okay. 
So this is the reason. Water was really unstable at that period of time, especially there. The well water was not reliable. They didn't want to introduce, obviously, what they understood of bacteria to the children. Sometimes they would actually mix wine with the children to kill the bacteria. But they would take care of them and wean or nurse them as long as they possibly could. But when she refers to this boy, when he's going to appear, she says, he's going to appear before Yahweh and he's going to live there forever. Verse 24, now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one epaph of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Although the child was young, then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy Eli. She said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which, petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, Elkanah is obviously a man of very significant wealth. Not only that he has an additional wife, because that was really uncommon among the commoners, but also because he's brought this very expensive offering. This is not an ordinary small-time offering. This is really, really expensive. Some translations say he brought three bulls with him. Well, what's going on is in the Old Testament, every child that was born, every firstborn male had to be presented back to God. And it was the, the offering of the first child, and then they're redeemed at one month of age. The same thing happened with Jesus. When He's one month of age, His parents brought Him to the temple to offer Him to the Lord, and then they would make an offering, five shekels, and buy them back. Well, Hannah's bringing the offering, a really expensive offering, but she chooses to give Samuel over to the Lord for the rest of his life, just as she vowed. And we're not saying that she no longer cares about her son. She actually never really lets him go. But rather, her commitment to God is so great, it overrides even her maternal instinct. So God gave him to her, and she gives him right back to God. And the care and the training of the child is transferred to the house of Eli. Now, if you know anything about Eli, you'd say, man, this guy's not such a great father role. He's not such a good trainer of children, but nonetheless, she trusts that God is going to allow this child to be raised in the right way. So now we make this huge transition over to chapter 2, and these new characters enter onto the scene. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The word is yada. We'll come back to that. And the custom of the priest with the people. So Eli's sons are really wicked. The, the Scriptures actually call them naughty boys, They're the sons of Belial. In this case, Hannah said, I'm not the daughter of Belial. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. But in this case, the Bible actually points out these guys are the sons of Satan. They are individuals who do not know the Lord. They have no regard for Him. So when you look at Belial, you see it in your notes and you've seen it on the screen. It's describing them not just as naughty in the way that we would think of in the English language, like somebody stole a cookie. These guys are wicked. They're vile in their behavior. This is the exact same term that was used back in Judges 19 when all those men assaulted that woman all night long. That's the exact same phrase that was used to describe them. So in verse 12, we're told, they did not know 
the Lord, Yada. And this is talking about more than just being familiar with. Somebody who's discerned intellectually and aligns themselves with, and they've come along with them to do life with them. Now, the word yada is used in a really broad sense throughout the Scriptures. Adam and Eve yada each other. They know each other intimately, physically, and the result is they produce a child. That's one way to use the word yada. But in every case that it's used, there's one consistent factor about this particular word. This particular word speaks of a really legitimate relationship. People who know each other so well, they're doing life together. Well, Eli's sons, we're being told, have no relationship whatsoever to Yahweh, and they have no interest in it. And so this is casting a very, very dark cloud over this story. Now, you might be a casual reader of the Bible and say, wait, these guys are being raised by the high priest? How can you be raised in a godly home and not know God? We, we need to recognize, especially as spectators to this story, that there are plenty of godly parents who raise up adult sons and daughters who don't follow God. And those parents may have done a really great job follow, raising up those kids, but kids still walk away. And it is a very difficult issue to process. And, and in regards to that, it doesn't mean that they've permanently walked away. They may have the seed of a relationship with God with them for 20, 30 years and come back to faith in Christ in their 50s. That's not that uncommon. I know that story pretty well. But here... Here, Eli hasn't exactly provided a godly home, nor has he given them a godly legacy. So this term, sons of Belial, it serves as a double entendre. If they're the sons of Belial and they're the sons of, of Eli, what does that make Eli? See, the double entendre is indicating this guy has not done well as a father over these boys. He's their father. They're the sons of Satan. Eli himself is behaving like Belial. How is that possible? Because he fails God in the greatest measure possible. You're going to see that bear out next week, but what's happening is he has become fully apostate. In other words, he knows what God calls them to do, and he's chosen, chosen something other than God willingly walking the opposite direction. Verse 13 illustrates that. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, if you're reading that casually, you might be thinking, well, okay, that's just giving a description of the offering. No, that's not what's going on. They're fully rejecting God's design. In archaeology, I think within the last 20 years, they found these bronze forks in the Middle East. Think of a giant pitchfork with three bronze prongs at the end, and these were used in the ritual sacrifices in which they would reach down into the cauldron and stir the meat around and pull meat out to put it on the offering, on the sacrificial altar. Well, that's not how they're using it here. So understand this background. Three times a year 
Every family was required to come to the central sanctuary, and they were to make their offerings to God at the main religious festivals. And God specified that the very best meat of the offering is what would be presented to Him. No second-class stuff, the premium stuff. And then what was left over at the end of the day, that was supposed to be the provisions by which the priest would survive on because they didn't go out and earn a living. They worked in the tabernacle all the time. So at the end of the day, they got the leftovers and they were able to sustain their families that way. Well, Eli's two reprobate sons, they know the system and they know it really, really well. And they're stealing the choice parts of the meat as it's being brought. And we're told they're actually fattening themselves. So these sons of Belial are seizing what they want before the people can even present it for sacrifices. Verse 15, also before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. So Hophni and Phinehas are demanding porterhouse steaks. They want the T-bones, and they want nothing less than that. They want the finest cuts of the meat, and they want it right from the butcher. And this rebellion is being described as very great, a very great sin. And if you're new to church, you might be thinking, What's the big deal with that? It's just meat. Here's the big deal. To treat the offerings to God with contempt is to treat God with contempt. So verse 17 says, the sins of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. So they're in these positions of power. These guards who serve at the tabernacle system, they work under these guys, and they're using the guards to strong-arm these people, and they're demanding in this most blasphemous way this disregard for God. And those who are coming with their offerings are saying, Phineas, Hophni, would you please just let us make an offering to God, then you can have it later. They're saying, no, we want it absolutely right now. So just think this way, church. Imagine when you go to the offering boxes here at the church. And you got a staff member standing back there who, when you reach to put your offering into the offering boxes here at the church, they intercept it on the way and filter through it and decide what they want and stuff it in their pocket. Would you not be ticked? Absolutely. Would it not make you despise the religious system, we'll call it? That thing that they're doing is causing people to despise this system. God personally gave the sacrificial system. He anointed it, and He said, this is how you will approach Me. This is how you will make sacrifices for your sins. So these two guys are despising the very thing that God gave as a way to align with Him, and they're actually despising the Lord. Do you know this is the reason why the rejection of Jesus is completely unforgivable? The very thing that God gave us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed that Jesus would become the sacrifice for us. 
And so the unforgivable sin becomes this issue of someone rejects the very thing that God gave as the way to be in proper standing with Him. If someone rejects that, it leaves you with absolutely no hope whatsoever, and rejecting that sends you to hell because you're choosing hell over God. Verse 18, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod, and his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. You're going to feel like you're doing mental ping pong here with a story, the way it's going back and forth. Okay, just stay with me because this is just closing out this section right here with Hannah. She's just an incredible person. You really need to study her. That's pretty cool that she's making him this, this miniature priest clothing. Understand what the mom is doing here. This tunic that the priest would wear, this ephod, is about waist length. And it's something that was very specific. It was specified by God that the priest would wear. Well, she's got this little four-year-old that she brought to the tabernacle, and he becomes five, and he becomes six, and he becomes seven, and eight, and every year he's growing, and she keeps bringing back this little miniature priest clothing. So Samuel has gone from the household of Hannah, but he's very, very near to her heart, in her heart. Spiritually, he's maturing as this child, started out at age four. What were you doing at age four, church? I'm guessing you weren't working in a tabernacle system. That's where he's at. So inwardly, he's got this very unique relationship with God. And outwardly, he's wearing this miniature priestly clothing. What a contrast to Hophni and Phinehas. You couldn't be more opposite. They despise God. Samuel is serving God, 180 degrees opposite. Verse 21, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. And that's the last we hear of Hannah before she steps off the pages of Scripture. And now comes the hard stuff. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? The evil that I hear from all these people, no, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So Eli is threatening them with these horrible consequences. And his sons completely ignore him. And we're told it's because God desires to put them to death. So when you think of that, think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart. 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 Five times. And then it transitions to the sixth time. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because he had crossed the line. These guys have crossed the line, and God's going to take them out. Their hearts are that hard. But for Eli's part, he's neglected his parental responsibilities earlier, and now he's trying desperately to reprimand them as adults. Previously, he heard that they're stealing from God, and now this new charge is added 
There's these ongoing sexual escapades with these women at the altar, right at the tabernacle system. Uh, these two degenerates, they're working from this position of power, and they're lording it over these women, and they're taking advantage of these women. Church, here's a question. What's the possibility that their behavior is causing people to look with disdain on the offerings of God? You think it's ticking people off a little bit? Like, what in the world is going on here? How corrupt could they be? And so Eli, the best he can do is come up with this argument, which is a weak theological argument. If you sin against each other, you could work it out in God's law, but if you sin against God, how are you going to work that out? Somebody has to be wrong, and it's not going to be God. He does call them out the best that he can. And Hophni and Phinehas have committed these capital offenses, and they can expect a death penalty. But here's what a lot of people miss when they look at this story. Eli has called out his sons in regards to their behavior, and he's leveled accusations toward them. But he totally misses himself in the equation. And because he's not really looking at himself and his failure, God has to send what the Scriptures call a man of God, a prophet, to get in his face. Here we go. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? And he's speaking of Aaron, Moses' brother. Did I not reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? So he gets directly up in Eli's business and calls him out, and he's going to project a terrifying future for the house of Eli. So he presents this litany of crimes against the house of the Lord. He references Aaron, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I chose you out of all the tribes to carry out the priestly function, and I trusted you with this responsibility in order to help people come to me. Eli's sons have committed really grave offense. But he doesn't bear responsibility for their offenses. God calls him out on his own failure. God calls him out on his sin. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice, at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? And there's where God hangs him out to dry. He's condemned for his sin, and what is his sin? Honoring his sons above the Lord, which is a total violation of the first command. First commandment, you shall have nothing else before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's allowed these guys to take a preeminent position. So I ask myself, what does that look like in my world today? What does that look like for you to honor something else or someone else above God? And in Eli's case, it's his own sons. I'll come back to that in just a second, but finish out this verse with me. 
Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed." The word scorn in the Hebrew language, kick at, to kick at something is to scorn it or treat it with no regard whatsoever. This is precisely what God has just said. This is what you guys are doing. So the sin of the house of Eli is a breach of the contract with the Lord. Thus. The Lord is no longer bound by the terms of the agreement. And He says, you're not going to walk before Me forever. I'm not going to allow it. That's their issue. Let's do a self-evaluation. What areas in your life do you find that compete with God for first place? Think of it this way. What do you face each week that pulls you and your family away from giving proper balance to the priority of putting God first. Here's where I might irritate you a little bit. Young families, my concern especially for you in this area is this. There's this thing called Sunday morning sports, it's kind of crept up on the scene in the last 30 years or so. It didn't exist when I was a kid, but it moved in and it's kind of taken over America. To the degree that Lori and I had friends whom we would associate with and who would say, yeah, I can't go to church this weekend. We got Sunday morning sports, as though that takes the preeminent position above the things of God. We have to check ourselves on all those kind of areas like, what about electronic entertainment, people? Who's controlling those things that come into your home? Who's getting first place in your life? Who's the keeper at the door guarding the responsibility over how we steward that household? How might you draw the line in the sand regarding this area, moving towards honoring God to the preeminent position so that we're making God choices because what you believe about God determines what you do? So regardless of your past mistakes in these areas, Regardless of where you may have come up short, we can determine to rise above it, can we not? It's kind of participatory. Can't we rise above those kind of things? God says we can. That we can set our mind anew and make a determination, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. So here's why I ask you that, because balance what I just said to you against this promise from God. Look at verse 30, those who honor Me, I will honor. Those who despise Me will be lightly esteemed." So let's just push down on this word honor. The word honor is in your notes, kabod. You know what it is to be honored by God? What would that look like? That God would make you weighty to the degree that you would have a lasting legacy. In your social circle, God would make you weighty. In your work environment, that God would make you weighty. In your family life, that God would make you weighty among the people that you do life with. You honor me, I will honor you. People will know that you put me first. 
That, that word kabod is very, very strong. So what does it look like to be honored by God in your life? Conversely, what does it look like to be lightly esteemed by God? Well, it's exactly what's going to happen to Eli, to be disregarded, to become irrelevant. This kalal word, that second word that's in your notes, it literally means to be made trifling, insignificant. And that's what's going to happen to Eli. So just two more minutes, let's just finish out what's going to happen in this judgment and we'll come back to it next week. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I, break your, when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you in which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die." To which the reader of 2024 looks at that and says, whoa, that's intense. God uses the phrase in which He says, I'm going to cut short the life. It literally means to shatter the arms. And you're going to see an example of that coming up in two weeks when God shatters a statue called Dagon and the arms break right off, taking away the strength, which made me think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This all prefigures what's going to happen down the road. We won't go to that right now. Finish it out, verse 35. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign to me one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread because they're going to be starving. So here's some elements coming out of this. First of all, Eli will witness the distress of the Lord's dwelling. This is what that just described there. What's he going to see? He's going to live to see, next week you'll see it, the Ark of the Covenant taken from Israel. It's going to actually cause him to die on the spot when that happens. Eli's sons will die on the same day, which confirms the reality of the severity of God's judgment. And next, he says, your future generations will have no regard for you. And in a clan-based society, that's a really big deal where the elders are held up to the preeminent position. The house of Eli is going to be so irrelevant in the power structure of the future generations, they're actually going to be begging for bread. Question, New Hope Church, does your God mess around? He does not. He does not take these things lightly, especially when someone's causing someone else to stumble. The response is really severe. And you're going to see Samuel's first action is going to be as a child of 12, he's going to have to pronounce judgment against the nation's most powerful family, which is incredibly haunting in the shadow of what we saw Jesus say in Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is God telling us not to love our family? No. He's saying, hold it in proper balance. Hold these relationships in such a way that you put me first and these things will fall into their proper position. By tolerating Hophni and Phinehas' behavior, Eli's demonstrating that he loves his sons way more than God, and they refuse to repent. Now, here's what I would love for you to carry out the door with you. It is a mistake to conclude from this story that every time you sin, it's going to result in condemnation without any possibility of experiencing God's mercy. Rather, what you should be seeing here is the great failure on the part of these primary characters is their failure to repent, to come to God and ask for forgiveness. Is God not rich in mercy, new hope? Is He not the first one to extend forgiveness? If anyone should have known that, it's Eli. He knows why the sacrificial system exists. So each of these reject the very thing that God gave to restore relationships. This is why my Bible says the same thing that your Bible says, which is, behold, today is the day of salvation, meaning today is the day you deal with these issues. Don't put it off. We understand as a church living in this era that the greatest gift God gave to us all is the gift of Jesus Christ to deal out forgiveness for our sins. And He compels us not to put it off. So Jesus, we understand, extends forgiveness to anyone who will ask for it. Now, kind of an abrupt ending here, but if you want to know more about that, regardless of your past mistakes, if you want to know about how to be restored with God, I'll be down here in the front of the building, right here at the auditory of the platform after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you about these things. There'll be people over in the prayer room who'll be thrilled to pray with you about these things. Check yourself on this. Do I need to deal with these issues in my life? Do I need to put God first? And you want to know more about it, go to the prayer room or come down and talk to me. I'm going to pray right now for God's blessing on you. Would you stand up with me? Father, I pray for this church family, for those who are streaming the broadcast right now and those who fill this auditorium. I pray that Your favor would be upon us. We have Your greatest favor because we have Jesus as our Savior for those of us who belong to You. And for those individuals specifically, I pray, God, that Your peace would rest upon them, that Your prosperity would rest upon them that they would know the favor of your face turning toward them and their families, that their families would be a lasting legacy, that generations would rise up and call these people in this auditorium and those people who are watching right now, Father, on the, on the broadcast, that their children and their children's children would call them blessed because they raised them and trained them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. God, I pray that you would send us out now with your blessing upon us. Let us feel your favor. I pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.